I'm Al Warren, Mr. Dave, 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 Dave. Dave <laughs> for the name. We're, we're doing what tea, name is it today? Teabag Dave or Thomas <laughs> Stewart Dave. Which one are we today? I don't know. Well, what do you feel like? Or Karate, karate Dave. That was you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Kung Fu now. Kung Fu, Teabag. Kung Fu. Dollar Store Dave. It's <laughs> because I drink, I, I'm drinking tea on the show. Oh, yeah. Teabag. <laughs> You know, speaking of you know, you're speaking of the dollar store. Do you know I had a, I got a I am? case, a, well, a case of um, uh, Coke Zero. Okay. You know, cans, twelve yeah. pack. Yeah. Yeah, uh, not twenty four, twelve pack. Okay, Canadian case. And um, anyway, so uh, I went to it later, and I found that it was all empty. You know what I mean? It all had drained out. Oh. oh. So. Um, Are the holes in the cans? No, but I, you know, but we talked to the rep. And I didn't realize this, but the new recycled cans are only good for a year. Oh. They disintegrate. <laughs> it's like, well, it would be nice if you told people. Just give they me a coupon for a couple of free cases because, you know, I guess. But so now I'm, I'm just wondering why they would do that. Huh. Not tell people. But maybe, yeah, it's, I mean, you know, it's probably your fault. It is my fault. Yeah. Just like everything else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to have to be careful. Dollar yes. Store Dave. <laughs> well, now oh. today we are going to the land down under or down there up over. And uh, returning guest, we've got, he's got a new book out. And you're going to say the name? Uh, the, the Road to Monte Pulciano. I, I was going to make Dave say the name. Yeah, that, oh, that's what I expected, but that's okay. Go ahead, Dave. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting. We already said it. No, no, no. I want to hear you. That was Come Dave. On. Just so you know, everybody, that was Dave. That was his accent. He was trying to be Australian. <laughs> did a pretty good job, actually. He sounded pretty real. I would okay. think, you know. The, the road to Monte Pulciano. Very good. There 10 out of 10. <laughs> well, there we go. See, so that, yeah. that's it. You don't need me. So, Garrick Jones, thank you for coming back on the show. Good morning. Or should I say good day? Good day. Yeah, well, it's actually late afternoon or evening day. It's almost yeah. bedtime. You know. It is. It's almost cocktail hour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's quarter after seven your time, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, boy. You got yeah, absolutely. Pajamas on and drinking tea. Yeah. So, Derek, new book. How long does it take you to do one of these books? Um, I started writing this particular book, I think, 18 months ago. Yeah, yeah I think it was um, February last year I started writing it. Um, the first draft took me three months, and then there were... Probably, as I was working on other things, probably about another three or four months going through it, revising it. Um, then I went off to an editor, which is a fairly, you know, fairly long process, backwards and forwards to the editor, then to the proofreader, and finally to the publisher. Um, so it took quite a while 
to get going. Usually it takes me about between writing the first work and when the book's finished, probably about 18 months. But I do overlap them, you know, I write while I'm working on one, I'm starting writing on a new, new one while I'm working on the edits, for example. When you do these, this is like a historical fiction. Yep. Where do you get inspired? Are you inspired by real people or real situations or real... Ah, uh, yes, I'm all, always inspired by real people in real situations. This book particularly because I spent practically every su- summer in, uh, for 30 years in that part of Italy. Um, but also I've, I finished reading a book called The Monster of Florence, which was about um, uh, a serial killer in that part of Italy uh, who they could never find, they could never track down. Uh, drew me in and I started to get this idea of how I could combine that part of the country that I knew so well with um, a murder mystery. And that's how it came to me. And I was in the back of my mind and made notes for a couple of years and it was um, when I'd finished writing another book, I thought, um, where do I go now? And I was leafing through my ideas and I saw this and I thought, yeah, this is, this is where I want to go now. And it, it sort of like the ideas grew in me and I, I had to start putting the words down on the page. So, like your characters, like when you have, like, uh, what's this, Damson O'Reilly, when you have a character like that, yeah. is that inspired by a real person in this particular case, or was this something dreamed up? No, he was, he was, came from a number of books. There was a lot, uh, uh, I wrote a book about, um, well, one of my detective, in the detective series, one of the characters came from a boy's home, and we had a lot of, I'm sure you did in Canada, I was reading, uh, and in the U.S. reading stuff about what went on in um, orphanages in the 1950s and the sort of what, you know, terrible things, but good things went on. And I started to think about this guy having been coming from a family, I did know a family like this, who was so poor that they couldn't afford to bring their kids up. So they said in, in the story, his parents send he and his brother to a Jesuit seminary to train to learn how to become farmers, to learn another trade as well. So, yeah, it sort of came from a, a fusion of other background ideas. But that's, that's where Damson came from. And I put him as an Irish background because there were a lot of Irish immigrants to Australia um, in the early part of the 20th century. Are you living through your character the whole 18 months that you write something like this? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It has to be. Uh, the, you have to... You have to inhabit all of the people in your book when you're writing it, otherwise they don't come across as real people. So even the baddies, you know, the antagonists, you have to live within them, find out what makes them tick, what motivates them. Uh, Otherwise you end up with two-dimensional characters. I'd imagine, but if you lived as Damson, going around with the accent, no. If you were were going through the same experiences and the emotions, like like you said, you have to in order to make it real, real character, real dialogue... At the end of the 18 months, do you think that process changes you? Oh, of course it does. Um, in fact, it's left that, this particular book left such a lingering impression on me um, that when my editor in the UK said, you should write a sequel, I sort of like jumped. I said, yeah, I really need to read a, read a sequel because I just loved in, inherit, uh, inhabiting that universe. That time, those characters, um, they really spoke something to me. I don't always feel like that when I'm writing a book, but this one I, I particularly did. So what happens to your character uh, at the end of the book? Like, do, they, do you just forget them and move on? I've written a few standalones. Um, there's a number of books that I've got 
standalone books that I have sequels in mind for, but there's always another project. I've got two series that I write. One's the World War II um, spy thriller series, and the other one's my 1950s uh, Australian detective pulp fiction. So there's, there's continuing stories in those books as they follow on. But with the standalones, I often think about what would happen to those characters afterwards, and does that make interesting reading? Can I make an, an interesting story, or is that book enough? Is what happened to that to those people? Is the the finish of the book enough? Does it tie everything up? Is there does there need to be further explanation? I, do, I get, do get a lot of requests from readers asking for sequels. Um, uh, the book, The Servants of the Crown, that I wrote, which is a nineteen eighteen fifty five Victorian sort of spy thriller. I've had so many people writing to me say you've got to write a sequel to that, but as yet, my heart isn't in a sequel because I felt that it was tidied up well enough. It was, it was really finalised. Well, how do you keep track of uh, the continuity of your characters, whether it's a series or a standalone? Do you have uh, tools? Do you have, do you have a system? Oh, look, yeah, I have this wonderful tool by Microsoft called OneNote. I don't know if you're aware of it. It's, um, it's sort of like a scrapbook, but on the computer, so that you can, uh, you can make a page about a character and then on that page you can have sub-pages with, in which you can put things like their likes, their, their habits, things that have happened to them, things that they've said that, that demonstrate the character. So you've got to have a reference tool. Everybody who writes a series has got to have at least a notebook. But going back through a written notebook would just drive you crazy because you wouldn't be able to sort of like search for things instantly. But with this program, OneNote, it's, it's free. It comes with Microsoft Office. I mean, not free. You have to pay for Office. But it comes with that as part of the Office suite. Um, it's like um, spreadsheet database. So um, I started using that about three years ago, so I've been spending quite a lot of time backfilling previous books into that system. So I keep a OneNote file for each of the series, and also have a OneNote file for each of the standalone books. Now you're writing, um, it, it, you're kind of covering some of Damson's life and events, but you're also having a, you know, the backdrop of, um, you know, murders going on and stuff. How do you decide where and how how much of each you put in of of this situation? Yeah, um, that's a, a difficult thing, you know that. You've got to, if, if the story's a, a murder mystery, you've got to keep that alive during the narrative. Even though the background of the, 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 the thrust of the story is about a young man starting a new life, uh, he, 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 he buys a, a farmhouse, an abandoned farmhouse, sight unseen at an auction in Italy because he wants somewhere that he can write and paint and make his own and renovate. Um, and when he arrives at this house, never having been there before, he discovers there are three bodies in the house. It's being used as a storage house uh, for murders. So against the backdrop of the renovation and his learning to live and speak the language and be part of the community in this small part of Italy, you've got to sort of balance out the fact that it's a murder mystery and keep that interest going for the reader so that it doesn't become of something like um, Francis May's Under a Tuscan Sun, for example, doesn't become sort of like a travelogue rebuilding, uh, learning all about Italy only, but it's you've got to have that, but really with the focus of the murder mysteries running through it. So finding the right time to drop in bombshells to keep the reader's interest is, I suppose, part of the 
I suppose skill is not the right word. It sounds a bit too patting myself on the back, but part of the the challenge of being a writer. Right, right. Well, I'm I'm writing this down because I want to become a writer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, if you look on look on Facebook, there are all sorts of ads. You know, learn to be a writer in in three hours, publish and be a bestseller and and retire. Oh, you know, geez, I I guess I'm true. Not. Yeah, well, I guess I'm not in the right circles, you know. <laughs> now, so we talked about the grisly murders and stuff in the in the in the part here, the beginning. Yeah. But before you do, let's. Are you thinking about how violent you want to get in a book, or how much of the murder you do? Oh, uh, there's look. It, in a murder mystery, I think you can be as grisly as you possibly as you like. To be quite honest, if you're writing a romance and you start to get grisly, you have to let the reader know. So you have to put a, a warning at the beginning of the book that, that there's violence. And if you're writing a book in which there's child abuse, you need to write that at the beginning. But in a murder mystery, people expect that sort of thing in a genre. One of the parts about this story is that the, the murders, the victims, have signs on their bodies of... Uh, that indicate that they're being punished for specific sins. So the things that happen that are done to the bodies give signs of of what they're being punished for. I'll say that without getting too much because I don't want to spoil too much of the plot. Right. It's like Dave going to the dollar store too much. His yes. wife, wife punishes him. Yes. Scars <laughs> <laughs> on him and he yeah. live with it. Yeah. So it is, it is pretty gris- grisly. But there's a specific reason behind each of the murders because it's a the, the first three bodies at the beginning are just the start because it's about serial murders and they continue to happen throughout the book just as the as Damson is getting settled into his life and finding new relationships uh, another murder happens and he gets caught up in it and it's really it's hard to write a murder mystery which is actually really about detectives solving uh, a murder where the main character actually isn't involved in that process, but sort of gets drawn into it. So writing the scenes where there are interrogations and things like that, you can't actually put the main character in them because he's not part of that investigative team. That was a challenge. Right, because you have to make him relevant to it somehow. Yeah, and it's it's written in first-person point of view, so therefore you can't all of a sudden you know switch over and write a scene where one of the detectives is interviewing the suspect because the first-person point of view, wouldn't be there and wouldn't be privy to that information. You have to be able to pass that on in conversation somehow during right, the book. Right, Otherwise, you're giving them whiplash. Yeah, well, and it's also confusing the read, the hell out yeah. of the reader. When you do this, have you got a theme or some sort of meaning behind this story? Is there something you want the reader to get other than the entertainment? What I want um, people to understand is that I grew up in the, I was born up, right at the end of the Second World War. So I grew up with a lot of very flawed male uh, figures around me. I mean, all my father and my uncles, all of their set, all fought during the Second World War, and because we're Australians, mostly in the uh, Japanese campaign. So there were, our neighbour, for example, was captured by the Japanese and worked on the Burma Railroad. So I grew up with all of these guys who were really fighting what had happened to them over the six years that they were in the war. And what I wanted to write about was this young man finding some sort of redemption, his his coming to terms with what actually happened to him during the war 
and starting to live a, a new life, to make new beginnings, um, but yet still only coming to terms with what had happened, not not really ex um, conquering it. If you if do you understand me? Yes. So he, he carries all of those scars with him, and also in the period in 1950 where the book set in Italy, which is only you know five years after the Second World War, there's a whole lot of still stuff going on about what happened in Italy with the occupation. Um, first, by Italy being at war with the Allies, and then later on being overtaken, overrun by the Germans when the Italians switched sides. Um, so there was a lot going on in Italy in the late 1940s and early 1950s, and combined with the big agrarian land reform that was going on, it's a very, very interesting period, and that's why I wanted to set the book then. Well, did, did you find that you had to take liberties with the time period uh, to make the plot work, or were you able to follow the history with uh, without much of a change? And I was able to, I was able to follow the history. Yeah, it was particularly tough because the Italians aren't quite so obsessed as we are, and for example, the Germans with record keeping. So you know, if you want to find out anything about uh, anything that happened in Britain or Australia or or the U.S. in say 1950, for, let's take that date 1950, you can look it up on the internet. You can find stuff because records are archived and so. But Italy isn't that obsessed, totally obsessed with records, so finding out um, local details was really, really difficult. Um, a lot of research went into this book, um, especially because so much of the records were destroyed during the Second World War or burned. A lot of Italians wanted to hide what they did uh, during the period that Germ uh, the Germans occupied Italy um, before it was liberated. Yeah, so there, that was really tough. But I, you know, I first went to Italy in 1972, which was admittedly, you know, 30 years after Second World War, not quite. But I met lots and lots of people who'd lived through that period, and used to get lots of when people had a few drinks, they would tell you about what went on, and you'd get different stories from different people. So quite an interesting period, and uh, I'll, and because the the remnants or the re repercussions of what happened during World War Two run through this book. They're part of the story. They're part of the reason why everything happens. I'd imagine it would be really tough, especially in Italy, to get a lot of that information too because you're relying on a lot of stories, right? Just, I mean, you look at today's date and you look at people and what they say about current events and you can hear totally different stories from different people that should have even more information because of the Internet. Yeah, well, you've got to remember too that a lot of people reinvented themselves after that major world conflict. You know, they turned from what they'd done before and during the war into another person afterwards to really get away from whether they were implicit in what went on or whether they were you know, collaborators or whether they were partisans. A lot of people reinvented themselves after the war and there was lots of migration all around all countries in, in Europe with people wanting to start new lives. So getting the truth out of out of people was really, really different. You just have to sort of rely on your senses. I remember talking to a woman um, in Montepulciano uh, who was a landlady for, you know, when I stayed in a flat for a while and she was telling me about what had happened uh, there during the war. But I sensed the story was not quite. And then later on I found out that she and her husband had both, both worked as partisans and they'd been out sort of shooting Germans in the night and all sorts of things. But... Yeah. People normally don't talk about that sort of stuff unless you ask them. You know, what do you do in the war? Oh, granny, I oh, shot lots of folks, yeah, mate. Yeah. <laughs> and I bet, I, I, I think that 
maybe I'm wrong here, but I think a lot of Americans don't realize how involved Australia was, and and you mentioned the Japan raids and stuff. You don't. I don't think a lot of people are aware of that. Is that is that true, or is that just me? Have I been on? Did I talk about my book? Uh, my name is Jimmy. Oh, I don't know if you did. No, I don't think I don't think we did talk about that. Um, uh, some time ago, I was invited to submit a novella for a collection, and the collection was on vacations. And, of course, I wrote historical fiction and a vacation somewhere warm. And then pretty well the whole of Australia is warm, so this was a challenge. So I decided to write a story about um, that had to do with my neighbour's husband who had been in Darwin during the Second World War. And a lot of people, a lot of Americans are completely unaware that the largest attack uh, by the Japanese on a naval base was in Darwin. And it happened with the same pilots, the same aircraft carriers, the same crew that had bombed Pearl Harbor, but with a larger loss of shipping and more destruction in Darwin than that happened at Pearl Harbor. So I wrote a preface about this at the beginning of My Name is Jimmy, and I cannot tell you the number of emails and letters I got from people saying, we in America are totally oblivious of any of this, and the fact that the Japanese continually bombed and attacked the northern part of our country all the way through the Second World War. It's part of history that you guys, Northern Americans, are not taught about. Yeah, so, and of course we had a major uh, uh, input into the Pacific War, and Australians fought along with Americans, both uh, the Army and the Navy, all the way through. Coral of The Battle of the Coral Sea, for example, a lot of Australian battleships there as well, um, and of course New Guinea and the Philippines and so forth. You know, country to country, I'm not saying that the way the education systems are different in every country. And I've been to went to high school in the U.S., so I know that history there is taught from an American perspective, and it basically is here too. But except we have still have links with Britain, so we get a lot more of British history into our education. Yeah, so Australians were a major part of the North African campaign in the early part of the Second World War um, until the Japanese started invading New Guinea and then our Prime Minister withdrew all of our troops away from Northern Africa to come back and defend Australia. And that's how we ended up in the Pacific campaign involved so heavily there. Yeah, and I only knew because I watch, I think it's the Smithsonian Channel once in a while, and it shows old you know, videos and stuff of of war and stuff, and there was the raid. Someone had filmed some of that raid you were talking about. Well, see, I grew up with those people, so to me it's not history, it's lived experience. So that's what made it really interesting to me, um, to be able to put those stories that I knew and had heard firsthand into something that I suppose I helped educate, you know, readers about that, we were also pretty heavily involved. Well, it was all your fault. Yeah, it was. We started it. Yeah. <laughs> but it was all my fault. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Put you in it. Why not? <laughs> the dollar store back then. That's right. So now you, you, you focus a lot on, on this, the history and, and things like that. Um, do you have inspirational writers or something that, that kind of turns you on to some of this history? Oh, uh, look, I have a, well, I have a number of writers who turn me on by their writing style. There's, um, I don't know if you've heard of Tammy Hoag. She's a U.S. writer, crime writer. I love her. I've got all of her books. I love her writing. I love the way that she 
sees into, we get real sort of depth and interest into everybody, the characters, we get to understand them and get to understand their the motivations. The other, my writing hero, heroes you may never have heard of, um, is an Australian writer called Christos Cholkas. He's a, a Greek heritage Australian writer. He writes really pithy, confronting books. Um, I love his writing style because he shows the vulnerabilities of mankind that not everybody is totally good and not everybody is totally evil. And the thing that I like mostly about him is that he makes the antagonist, you understand what drives the antagonist. And that's something that I've always tried to do, tried to make that the people who are the baddies, for use of another word, make them human, make the reader understand what drives them to be the way that they are. So you just don't get, as I said before, cutouts, two-dimensional characters. Do you, do you like writing the evil person? Because like when you when you say that, it's true. You've got to show, in their mind, they're doing it for a reason. They they Whatever that is, in their mind, they think they're doing the right thing, so to speak. Yeah, well, it depends on how, how they're driven. And in fact, um, I feel that there's, in this particular book, the, all of the characters who may be not what we call the goodies, um, there's a certain sympathy behind their actions. And especially for the murders, there's, I think I want the reader to feel that although the, the methods were extreme, that what came behind it was driven from something very genuine. So that you just don't go, I hate this person, I don't care what made them do this. You've got to, be, you've got to understand that a reader needs to understand what, what drove them to become the person that they are. Do you know people like that? Um, <laughs> yeah, I'd say my, I would say my stepfather was a person like that. He was a pretty evil man. Yeah. And you said you draw on him maybe when you write some of these bad characters? Yeah, not in this particular book. In my book, Wheelchair, I certainly, there was a character in that I based on my stepfather. Yeah, that was really painful, actually, book to write. I still haven't recovered from that. <laughs> it's a number of years ago now. Well, was it just because it was it was too close to real in your life? Yeah, it, I, I wanted to write. I suffered from. I, I was a victim of quite extreme child abuse, so I grew up. My psychiatrist said to me, "So, wonder you didn't turn out to be an axe murderer," <laughs> which we laughed about at the time. But I think about it, you know, like I had a very abused childhood with a, a neglectful mother and. It, I, I wanted to, as a result of that, I have OCD and PTSD. So I wanted to write a story of what it was like from a first-person point of view to be suffer with that stuff and then to intersperse the book with third-person points of view of how that behaviour was interpreted by people who were close to the person who suffered with those things. So that was a hard book to write and it took a lot out of me. It hasn't been incredibly well received. I mean, the writing, lots of comments on how good the writing is, and, uh, but it's not an enjoyable book because it's too confronting for a lot of people. Even though I gave it a, a reasonably happy ending, they don't like to read about reality unless it's a non-fiction book. That's, that was my experience anyway. Yeah, no, I think there's probably a, some truth to that, right? I mean, I don't know how many people have told me at signings that uh, well, they could never read uh, true crime or the violence and stuff like that, but yet they read, you know, crime fiction. <laughs> Did you guys, uh, you read A Little Life? Oh, no. Which, who's that? Uh, I can't remember her name. It's, she's got a Japanese name. It's, it's quite a, uh, a thick book, 
but it took me a year and a half to read it because it's, it, it just gutted me all the time, all the way through. It's about a similar character, a character with um, OCD and PTSD, but his, uh, his journey and his life and everything just, oh. At the moment, it's, on, it's being done as a play uh, in the West End with a couple of very famous people whose names have gone right out of my mind, as they always do when you put in situations like this. Um, yeah, but it's a very, very harrowing book. But I learned a lot from that. I learned about confronting the reader and and giving them, writing truth. You don't always want truth, but in some books you do need truth. You need to actually not sugarcoat things, but just say things how they are. Right. Right, it's much better. Uh, I guess you can't help but live through some of your own personal life in some of these scenarios. Oh no! Right, right. Yeah. But then, but then that's what makes it real as well. That makes it authentic. Yeah, I try. I my uh, my Clyde Smith series, which is the detective series in the 1957s. I started writing that as a way of uh, what's the word of coming to terms with some of the things that happened to me in my childhood and making a much brighter world in that period than mine had been. So it was a sort of like a curing process. Um, yeah, a sort of therapy. I therapied myself by writing a, a much nicer version of, of my actual home life at the time. So, so in, your, in your case then, do you not care for writing the, the, um, the evil or the bad person or... Do you like the um, happier sort of situation, personally? I like both, and I actually really enjoy making an interesting bad character. I find that's a challenge, making a character that has, has, um, has flaws and who has good parts to them and trying to figure out what made them into a, a bad person, what made them act the way that they do. And I, I hope that I've succeeded in The Road to Multiple China yeah, because there's a there's a, a couple of characters in who are not, are not good, what we would call good people, but there are reasons behind it, and I think that they're compelling and interesting reasons um, that would really grab the attention of the reader. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting process, you know, and and how you change through it. Does, have you have you ever come across writing a story or putting together a book, and it kind of goes in a place you don't want it to go? Oh, all the time. Oh. <laughs> I'm what's called a, a pantser. Um, for those who are not writers, we have um, people who plot. In fact, when they start writing the book, they have every scene worked out, every interaction right from the beginning of the book to the end. Pantsers means we write by the seat of our pants. You start off, I start off with a beginning, an ending. I know what's going to happen in between, but I have no plot. So often I start writing and just what I call magic sort of comes out of my fingers onto the keyboard and things happen. You know, sometimes your book can go off in a totally different direction and more often not for the better. You end up with a far more interesting story. I, one story I wrote recently, I decided all of a sudden to make with one of the female characters a gay woman and, and it just sort of like explained so much more about the story and made it far more interesting um, writing from with her as her sexuality exposed like that. And that just came by merely my fingers doing that without much conscious thought. Has it come to a point where sometimes you don't want to publish the book? Has it gone in a direction that you're kind of going, oh, my God, I can't do this? No, it's, I think it's always salvageable, even if it needs a lot of rewriting. And often your 
beta writers, beta readers, that's people that you send out your manuscript to, to get their opinions on, people you trust or people with expertise in a particular area, uh, a subject that you're writing about, will give you feedback and say, no, look, I just don't like this, I don't think this works, you know. How, and often they'll give you suggestions and sometimes the suggestions are really good. But I, don't, I think everything's salvageable. <laughs> you haven't read mine. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes it just needs another pair of eyes to look at it and say, hey, why is so-and-so doing this instead of this other thing? And you go, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. If they did this other thing, then that would change the whole plot and the whole idea and the characterization and make a lot more sense of the situations that come out of that character being the way that they are or doing that particular thing. So which book do you think stuck with you the, since you've written it, like it kind of stays with you all the time? The one that stays with me all the time is a story called, a book called The, the House with a Thousand Stairs. And it's probably got, got the best reviews of anything I've ever written. It sort of sits at about 4.95 stars on both Amazon and Goodreads. And it's another book written slightly earlier than The Road to Monte Pulciano, set in 1947. It's about two childhood friends, one who's, who's an indigenous Australian, the other a son of a white, white settlers, who both go off to war and the, they've been friends when they were child children and come back after, after the war and find they're both drastically changed, but they, they reunite their friendship through the love of the land and their connection to what we call country, which is the Aboriginalist idea of the land being part of the culture, but also being part of the Aboriginal nation themselves. They see themselves as being part of the country itself, and they see themselves as being part of the land, so that everything is utilised with the land with great care and um, they cultivate the land, um, but not in a traditional agricultural way, but of maintaining the country and all of their uh, religions and uh, beliefs and spirit world is centred around the land. A, a lot of people don't realise that when Australia was first um, invaded, as they like to say by the British, there were over 250 different tribes each with their own different language. And in Australia, there's still over 160 separate Indigenous languages spoken and mutually unintelligible to each other. That's a pr pretty amazing fact when you think about that. How do you get into something like that? How did that happen for you? Um, well, I grew up in the area in which I wrote the book, and I grew up with Indigenous people. At, at, and uh, at the same time that um, the book is set, so I was pretty aware of, you know, what was going on then. But I wanted to talk about that, that sort of cross-cultural um, friendships between Indigenous people and white people and how that can be resolved by a, a third party. And the third party, in this case, is the love of the land. And it stuck with me. I have a great deal, because I used a lot of members of my family as, as templates for characters in the book. It's had fantastic reviews, um, especially from U.S. readers. Some, somehow they, they identify with the feeling of regrowth and rejuvenation, rejuvenation and community. Yeah. I did want to put a bit of that into the current book, the Rodeo from Multiple China as well. The fact that Damson actually becomes part of the Italian community and they take to him as, as much as he takes to them, you know, finding, finding a place in the world. Yeah, and that's a, that's a unique thing to write about um, when you have someone go to a community and then I, what is it that, that take, what is it that gets them accepted? What does it take? 
for them to be part of the community and where's that line drawn and do they ever really become part of it? You know, there's a lot of questions there. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, and I think that's a challenge. I mean, as somebody who relocated all over the world because of my work, I've had the same sort of challenges. And in my life, it was always something fairly significant that changed that thing, that state of being uh, um, a long-term visitor to being accepted by the community. Something would happen that was fairly important that would bring you over to the other side of the line. Yeah, sleep with mm. you. <laughs> <laughs> Just throwing that in there, you know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. Well, that, that that does happen a little bit in this book too, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a little bit racier than anything I've ever written before, but it's only because I got so many emails asking people why I always fade, fade to black and couldn't I give them a little bit more. So this was a test. Where is the cock? <laughs> <laughs> well, if, so... How do you decide what is too much? Like, are you are you not a natural at that? Do you do you feel uncomfortable writing that sort of area? I do find uncomfortable about it because if you're going to write about sex, then you can only base it by what you do yourself. Uh, I think a, a mistake that a lot of writers um, who aren't gay when they're writing about gay sex is they base gay sex on what they see in porn movies. And that's just not the reality, as we all know. You mean that's not how we do it? <laughs> nope. So, yeah, and because when you're writing about it, you're basing it on first-hand experiences, a lot of exposing yourself and what you do. And I grew up in a generation where that stuff was really, really private, you know. So writing about these sort of things, I can't help but sometimes squirm a bit when I'm writing them thinking how far do I go, you know, what what things do I talk about? But then then you have to pull yourself out of that and go, no, I'm not Garrick Jones writing this. I am Damson O'Reilly doing these things. And what would he do in 1950 with this particular person? The book is split in two halves. He, 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 makes, he forms relationships with two people, the first of which is a sexual relationship because he's been basically abstinent throughout the war. So he arrives after sort of nearly 10 years, arrives in Italy and meets somebody and it becomes a sexual relationship. But the second half of the book he meets somebody else and it becomes a far more developed relationship where it's not about the sex, it's about uh, connecting, about growing and accepting and opening himself up in a way that he had never done before with anyone before. So both of those were tough rights because they do, you, know, you have to expose yourself as a writer. If you don't expose yourself, then it doesn't come across as with any truth. Well, do you find that, like a sex scene, do you, do you find that it slows down the story? or uh, It can do. Uh, I, I always put sex scenes as part of advancing the plot. There's always something. Yeah. That there's a reason for the sex scene, that we learn something about the people or their past or you know their character by the sex scene. It's not just their, you know, to reach for the box of tissues. <laughs> well, they see a dead body and they're going to have sex. <laughs> well, people are very, very, very strange. <laughs> well, does it ever sort of make you, um, you know, you put the book out, so, you know, the feelings are out there and you've kind of exposed some of your own inner oh, yeah. emotions. Does that sort of make you feel kind of a little self-conscious? Yeah. Yeah. It does. <laughs> yeah, it does. I actually think... Um, a friend of mine wrote to me, the very first book of mine was published as a collection of short stories set each a decade apart during the 20th century. 
That's probably my, still my bestseller. Um, and there were a lot of intimate writing in that one. And a friend wrote to me, she said, I had no idea that men could do this stuff. And she said, I actually blushed at one particular part. And I remember squirming, thinking, oh, God. But, hey, it is what it is. You know, we, you know, you know living in a basically heterosexual world, we, we have no um, illusions about what straight people do together. But what gay people do together on the whole is missing is just is wrong the general conception from the from the public about what we do is just basically wrong it's just two dimensional that there's always a dominant partner always a submissive partner and we only have sex in this way and we're interested in only interested in the youth and it's just all misinformation it's not like that at all in fact so uh, just recently i had somebody write to me she said i had no idea men could have intercourse face to face i thought to myself why why did you have no idea she's never had it with her husband with your imagination <laughs> yeah i but these sort of things astound me i mean it's not i suppose it's because there's still a lot of feeling that it's dirty within the in the yeah. in the straight community um, and they they forget that Mostly when men get together, it's because it's love. It's, you know, it might start off as sex like it does with normal heterosexual companies, couples, but people get together because they love each other, not because it's a convenient sexual partner. I like to write about that, that we're just average people. We're judges and lawyers and bricklayers and cops and you know, armed servicemen and, and we're teachers and we just happen to go home to somebody of the same sex at the end of the day and kiss them on the cheek and say, what's for dinner? Yeah, People well, I mean, that. they don't know. I mean, there's not enough of it out there. And when it is, like you said, it's kind of pornography. Yeah, and a lot of people do write sort of sensationalist literature to get readers who like that um, stuff, but I'm not one of them. To me, if I'm writing a sex scene, it, there needs to be a reason for it. Right, it's got to have some meaning to it. It can't just be sex for sex. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's a hell of a lot of literature out there like that, like Fifty Shades of Grey type stuff. You know, there's a lot. People like it, you know. Yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of, a lot of the gay books are that way too. Male, male. There's a lot of sex. Yeah, I, I, I would, I don't want this to be taken the wrong way. I'd hazard to say mostly, uh, most of that written by women for other women. The, the gay romance scene is basically mostly written by female writers for other female readers. Yeah, but there are... A, an extraordinary amount of gay people, and I write a lot of books in which there is no sex at all. You know, it's, I write stories in which the characters just happen to be to be gay, and it don't, they don't define themselves by being gay. They just are. That's who they are. So often there's not a lot of mention of their relationships at all. Yeah, that's a good thing. It's more character-driven, you know. So what do you think about um, the way society kind of changes and, you know, the wave it's been going in of late? you feel sort of uh, like you've been there before? You know, without, you know, detail, I mean, just, we don't get political, but... Yeah, look, I, I do feel, I do feel that, especially as a student of history, um, you think that um, Louisiana in the U.S. has a different, totally different legal system because it was based on the Napoleonic Code, and the Napoleonic Code did not have criminalized homosexual acts. You know, the, the, it's, it's all cyclical. Look at ancient Rome and ancient Greece. I mean, we always go, always go back to that where there was no such concept of sexuality as a stuff that, of a, a thing. One didn't define themselves as straight or gay, you just were. And I thought we were sort of like heading there in the 1970s, 60s and 70s, but then all of a sudden the AIDS crisis just 
changed everything drastically. And then all of a sudden we were back being dirty and diseased all of a sudden. And then we went through a, a wave of neoliberalism and then we get the Trumpist regime where they're anti-everything that isn't man and wife and man with 15 mistresses <laughs> and they're and they're, you know, two and a half babies. Uh, yeah, it's it's going in a different way. But it will go back the other way. It's just, you look, student of history, you see that these things change. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of how I look at it, too. And it seems extreme, but it, because we're here at the moment, but I'm sure it did at other times, too, you know. Yeah. It's just a pity that going through it is not so nice. I feel very sorry for what's happening in the U.S. at the moment with the banning of books. I mean, I read something stupid the other day about a, a library banning a book because it was written by somebody whose surname was gay. <laughs> and it wasn't even a gay book. And i like, come on, people. I just It has to do with education. That's my belief. That we're just not teaching people to examine. We're not giving them logical thought in their school years so that they can actually make reasonable, adjusted decisions based on evidence. Yeah, and then some of them changing books, you know, and some of the uh, um, books being altered by publishers now, you know. Oh, Geek it's crazy. I mean, I've, as somebody who um, comes from, a, you know, like British spelling and everything, I still find it crazy when I pick up, pick up um, an American version of Charles Dickens and find all the spellings have changed to American spellings. I just, I balk at every third word, but then I realise that that's what American readers must do when they're reading my books, which are all spelled and written with British standard spelling and grammar. Where where do people find Garrick Jones? Do you use social media? Do you got like um, yeah, pubs? Facebook, yeah, Facebook, um, Instagram, Twitter, X, um, my website. Um, my books are available in any bookstore across the world. You just have to go in and ask behind the counter, and they can get a book in usually two or three days from ordering, like any other book. So, and all all the online retailers um, stock all of the books, and specialist bookstores. Books for specialists. Yeah, we've got um, a couple of really made two really major um, bookstores in Australia that specialise in gay literature. Um, written either by gay authors or about gay subjects, and they're really quite big, um, and they have a big presence here. Uh, in fact, most of my paperback sales are either in the UK or in, in Australia, and America e-books seem to be the big thing, which is rather strange because books are exponentially cheaper to print in the US than they are in either the UK or here. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, the price difference is it's crazy. Well, we appreciate you being on the show. I've enjoyed myself again. We'll have everything up on our website so people can find you. And uh, what can I say? Uh, Garrick Jones, thank you for being here. Thank you, David. Thank you, Alan. Thanks, Garrick. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This is the production of something with media. I'll be back.